Hi, everyone. Welcome to the December 17th, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, we've been doing the show for a few years now, and I've come to know if there's some sort of energy before the show, what it might mean for the actual show, the things that happen before the cameras turn on. I can tell you right now, folks, you're, you're in store for a very special program if the last 10 minutes before the cameras run are any indication, which I think they are. Let's get rolling to our first topic. Officials at Denver International Airport presented a proposal to the Denver City Council this week that essentially reinstates many of the previous cuts to the original project. The new request brings the total added cost to $1.3 billion and the total project cost to $2.1 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars. We start with you, Patty Calhoun from Westward. So uh, I guess the council asked to get, hey, what is it going to take to get back to the original project, which we always wanted years ago? They got that part what they wanted. I'm not sure they were expecting uh, billions of dollars being added. Your thoughts? Well, the only good thing I can see so far um, is that it doesn't look like the shopping mall concept is coming back. I could have missed it. That's what I've been reading on every single story, that for all this money, we are not going to get a shopping mall. And that is a greater good. Um, I welcome back the fact that they now put the wait times up on Fly Denver. For, for those who are leaving town this uh, this season, look at that. I did it on Monday, on Sunday when I took my sister to the airport, and it turned out it was only off by about an hour, the wait time <laughs> on security. And there were no notifications, and she was behind some poor man with a cane who she had to help walk. It was like three miles by the time they were done winding around baggage. But they did clear it up later in the day, so... My sister actually thought maybe they did it just so they would get the money because they would say, we can get rid of these weights if we get the money. I'm glad they're pushing ahead. I still cannot forgive city council for passing the original Ferrovial contract, which put us in this mess. We also have to remember, though, DIA has generally been a big success, and it had a really rocky start. They had to get rid of the original architect, bring in Fentress and others, redo the design. So if this course correction works as well as the original course correction on DIA, we'll be happy in five years. <laughs> the happy virus, maybe. Uh, David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. It seems also not only did the price tag extend, but we also have an extension of the deadline because it's going to take a lot longer to spend all this money and actually do the work. Uh, the, the final bow on the project might not come until 2028. Uh, do you see any roadblocks from council to this big price tag? I, I think not, because the, the uh, council uh, committee approved it six to one. The dissenter was Amanda Sawyer, who said she, she liked the concept, but they needed more information. And I hope she continues to persist in, in requiring more. Uh, Patty, I guess, is, is easily satisfied, because she's going to be happy in 2026 for a project that even the most optimistically won't be done by 2028. Many of the things in this make sense. One thing that doesn't is this $200 million for this equity center at the airport, which is supposed to encourage uh, minorities to get into aviation. That's something that could be done probably for far less cost and, and more effectively uh, by encouraging a, uh, aviation programs at, lo at local colleges. One of the key drivers of this that has never been really stated much out loud is security, because in the current arrangement, you could have jihadists or, or other terrorists come into level six and from the, the uh, landings there start throwing bombs or shooting people down in the very crowded areas of the security on level five. So that's the point about having to rearrange everything and move, move 
uh, security up to level six. I just wonder if that's the only way to do it. Maybe you could build a roof on level six and, and connect the, the landing areas, or you could just hire a lot more uh, police and security guards, which even over the next 30 years would still a lot cost a lot less than the construction. But overall, even though these things make sense in the abstract, in real life, this is going to be done by the Michael Hancock administration. And what is their track record on large projects? Not that strong. Eric Sonderman joins us, a longtime political analyst here on Colorado Inside Out, a uh, columnist for Colorado Politics, also the, the Gazette newspapers. Eric, it's, it's a big task, and it almost it, it feels a little bit like uh, the origination of DIA when it started under one mayor's administration. Some questionable things happened with the project, and it got handed off to somebody. In 2023, this will be handed off to a new mayor in whatever condition the project is going to be. Uh, does this become the center point of everything we're looking for in the future of Denver politics. It becomes a center point. It's not the only issue that will be debated come 2023, Lord knows. There are plenty of other issues. I think I drove by a few encampments on my way up to the station today. Uh, there will be no shortage of things to talk about. But this is, you know, not just adding $100 million to a budget. This is more than doubling a budget. And we're only really talking about the Great Hall here. We're not talking about all the money that's also getting spent out on concourse expansions and extensions, although that is money uh, largely paid for. <laughs> by airlines. Uh, my, my biggest take on this, Dominic, is what I've said before. The city has done a miserable job, as has the airport, of explaining the why. And that doesn't just relate to this last week and this latest council vote. This relates going back years and years. If there is a vision out there, what is the vision? Why hasn't it been communicated? Why does it still, why people still resist communicating? If we're going to all this brain damage and Lord knows all this expense, and by the time 2028 rolls around, I guess we'll be just in time to start the next renovation project at DIA because everything they're putting in now will be dated by then. Um, tell us what we're buying and why it is so imperative. That is not to say renovation and upgrades after 25 years are not necessary. But why this and why this expense? Penfield Tate rounds out the panel, uh, attorney with Tate Law, also a longtime state lawmaker. Penn, as a state lawmaker, I imagine you're in the position uh, like Councilman Kevin Flint, who wanted to see a report of how can we get this project done? And then it came in with a pretty surprising price tag. So as you look to council who's trying to balance this out, we want to get the right job done, but at what cost? What needs to be considered? What aren't we hearing about this process? You know, I, what we aren't hearing is a couple of things, and everybody's touched on this. Number one, fundamentally, nobody's questioning the need to continue to upgrade your public infrastructure. That is an ongoing process. You have to maintain it, expand it, improve it. The question becomes the why and the how. And let's remember, with this Great Hall project, when it first got started by this administration, the big battle was the administration wouldn't share any information with city council. Ferroville and all of these contracts were a secret. City council, you may recall, even tried to hire its own outside council to help them understand the deal, which this administration squashed. Then the administration delivered buckets and boxes of documents and gave city council something crazy like four days to review everything. So when the project finally went forward, nobody really understood it. 
And as we found out after the last election cycle, the administration didn't understand it because they put Kim Day front and center to admit we didn't have the capacity, we didn't have the background, we didn't have the competence to do the project. And now they're looking to come back again after having paid hundreds of millions of dollars to shuttle the last project, to revitalize it, and now with a change order on top of it, um, over doubling the size of the project, and no one can explain the whys and the wherefores. And so Amanda Sawyer and other council people are right to say, you got to explain this to us. We've been down this path before, threw a bunch of money away because you guys couldn't execute. you got to convince us you can execute now. And council needs to be persistent because something still doesn't smell right here. The study of, on crime rates in the Denver metro area from the Common Sense Institute released last week continued to make waves this week. The report, authored by former Denver DA Mitch Morrissey and former district attorney for the 18th Judicial District George Brockler, showed that crime rates throughout the metro area have risen dramatically when compared to rates 10 years ago and other national averages. The study also claims these rate increases are due to various new criminal justice policies and reforms. David, uh, I'm sure you, you always do the best homework on the panel. What did you think of the report and also the, the correlations that uh, both Morrissey and Brockler made about policies? Well, it's a beautifully prepared and very thoroughly uh, data-driven report available on the Common Sense Institute's website. And I urge people to read it for themselves. Uh, here are some of the things they, they found. Colorado is now the number one state in auto theft, uh, and auto thieves around here operate with virtual impunity. Over the last decade, we started uh, in 2011 with a crime rate of about 5,000 crimes per 100,000 inhabitants. Now we're up to almost 7,000 crimes per 100,000 inhabitants. Uh, Another major huge increase has been on retail theft. Uh, We saw that just on the news last night where a a bunch of crooks walk into a store in Longmont and, and walk out with all these expensive winter coats, complete impunity. Uh, The murder rate has doubled. Uh, We have the fifth highest recidivism rate in the country. And overall, the number of people incarcerated is down 27 percent and crime is up 43 percent. The authors are really cautious about uh, assigning causes to this. But one thing they do focus on has been the great reduction in bonds for criminals. Uh, And of course, if you're arrested, you're not convicted yet, so you're not supposed to be sentenced to jail. But the fact is, so many people are getting out of jail on a zero or one dollar or two dollar bond. And it's not just petty crimes. It includes uh, people uh, accused of uh, class two felonies. And they say that has been a major problem on that. And the the bail reform that's gone on has probably gone uh, too far. Eric, it seems like something like this can drive a whole lot of politics moving forward, people pointing to it, and especially the policy side of things. As you're looking at this, what kind of impact do you think a study like this will make? I think it has impact. I called it, I believe it was last week on the show, the sleeper issue of the coming year, and uh, I'm, I'm not even sure it's that sleepy anymore. I think it might be the, uh, the headline issue or one of the headline issues. I know Republicans certainly intend to run on it. I've seen uh, a number of social media posts from Heidi Ganahl, Republican candidate for governor, uh, just over the last week based around uh, this report. Good for Common Sense Institute, good for George Brockler and Mitch Morrissey for putting their voices out there and, 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 and making it data-driven. I think Democrats 
tend, their instinct is going to be to want to ignore this issue or downplay it and hope that it goes away. I think they adopt that strategy uh, at their peril. Policy matters in this case, and public opinion matters as well. And just like so much else in our society these days, we're pinging back and forth between sort of extreme positions. You know, we used to worship cops. Now we demonize cops. The worship was probably uh, misplaced, but the demonization is also misplaced. And uh, our attitudes about this matter, and we need to come to some kind of rational middle ground, and not all policy we have adopted here under the heading of reform has worked. And there's a lot of issues at play here, and while I understand the bipartisan nature of having Mitch Morrissey and George Brockler involved, they also have a similar job as prosecutors, so I take that into consideration. Uh, As you look at the multiple factors at play here, what stand out to you? You know, and Dominic, you started with the point I was going to start with. I mean, I I respect both Mitch and, and, and... Um, Mr. Brockler, but but clearly they have a perspective, a point of view. They're prosecutors, so we have to begin there. Um, it, crime is up. Nobody can dispute that, at least no, no rational person. But then when you see what happened on January 6th, you have to ask yourself, is it because of reform efforts around the country, or is there something else and something deeper happening within this country? And I think it's something far deeper. Part of what we've got in Colorado and in the front range is, in the last 10 years, the population has grown explosively. So you have a lot of people who have moved into this area with no real connection or tie to the community, and that's part of the driver. Some reform probably hasn't worked. Some has. But when David um, specifically referenced bail, understand part of the reform movement there is a question about equity. Should you be able to be released on bond just because you're rich? Um, And so the fact that a poor person and a rich person commit the same crime, should only the rich person be out on bond because they're rich? And so some of these things need to be challenged and questioned, but it's going to be an ongoing process. But reform alone is not driving this issue. Petty, Democrats still hold the levers of power statewide uh, in Denver, um, you know, basically except for Aurora right now. Do you think this becomes an issue that we see more action on uh, in the months ahead? Well, certainly in the mayoral race coming up, which is nonpartisan technically, but Eric was talking about it being a sleepy issue. We got the wake-up call, first of all, in Aurora over those recent shootings. They just had a meeting this week talking about the youth violence and the Union Station stories that we've heard about lately. It's, they're much more dramatic than a study is going to be, although certainly the numbers in this study were dramatic. But you saw the TV stations were all over this Union Station story and also over the Aurora shooting, and people are concerned. The car theft rates are incredible. And a lot of those you really can tie to COVID. Some of these other things you can't. Uh, Common Sense Institute certainly knows how to get headlines because right before this, their big report they had released was on how much was being spent on homelessness. And that was also a really well-documented piece, but um, really grabbed some sensational headlines. Last Friday, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock vetoed a bill passed by the Denver City Council that would have banned flavored tobacco products in Denver. Hancock said that he agrees that youth tobacco use is a problem, but that this particular proposal wouldn't address it and would cause harm to businesses. The council failed to override uh, Mayor Hancock's veto on Monday night. 
Eric, we saw a lot of praise coming out for Mayor Hancock on this from unlikely sources. I, I saw Ross Kaminsky on Twitter. He, he may have praised Mayor Hancock some point in the past, but he's not an often person who has supported uh, the different policy points. So, uh, the, and the fact that the council was unable to override the veto, the mayor got his way in this one. Was it the right call? It was probably politically the right call for Michael Hancock. It uh, demonstrated, at least I'm still here, I'm still relevant. Uh, this term has another 16 months to go. I think the veto was somewhat of a surprise. I didn't hear it discussed much in advance. I don't think council necessarily saw it coming. They were one vote short of an override. At the end of the day, this is still a strong mayor. We council form a government we have in Denver, and mayors uh, tend to get their way. Vaping which is really what we're talking about, is a problem. It is a gateway, uh, particularly among youth here, um, and it is a problem that needs to be addressed. The question is, is this the time in the midst of an economic downturn, COVID, uh, and everything else? I would love to see Michael Hancock not just veto this bill, but come back with an alternate proposal that satisfies his objections that maybe council uh, can pass. Uh, at the end of the day, I don't think this is going to be the issue we're discussing in the middle of the mayor's race. Penn, we've kicked around a couple different ideas from the Denver City Council over the last uh, several months. Uh, your idea on the proposal and the veto. You know, the veto was surprising. And I think what I hear people saying, it sort of echoes what Eric said, that most people saw this as a political move. I mean, when's the last time this mayor vetoed any city council legislation? And the stated reason is bizarre, that it wasn't going to help address the issue of teen vaping. Well, it probably was. Did it go a measure too far? Maybe. But when you veto a measure that's supposed to promote public safety and health and you have no alternative to propose, people are going to question your motives. And then they should rightly do so, particularly when you haven't signaled that this legislation you're considering is a problem. You know, having served in the legislative branch and having dealt with governors, one of the things we always appreciated was a governor who at least was willing to say, on this issue, it's a problem, and I'm interested in seeing a few things. And as a legislature, you can at least either respond to that or not. But when someone is, you know, is silent on the issue and then springs up and vetoes it, you don't have an opportunity to be responsive to what they think are their concerns. Patty, I don't do the David Copel level of homework for this show, but I did a little homework on this. I think this was Mayor Hancock's second veto. He vetoed the Pitbull ban. Um, so it's, it's a rare move. Uh, what did you think of the move and its effect? I made 20 bucks betting he would do this. It was <laughs> flawed. Uh, it was flawed, a flawed proposal. And Hancock should have told them what he was concerned about. But you saw they had already voted through some exemptions. The hookah lounges, I understood that exemption made sense. And hookah lounges will now have a different rules put on them. They are actually going to have close, uh, closing hours because people didn't know they didn't have closing hours before. But, you know, the premium cigar and the pipe tobacco exemptions, when there weren't exemptions, say, for menthol cigarettes, which is an issue, um, an equity issue, because often that's black and Latino communities use those in a heavier ratio. There are also the issues of people who want to quit smoking. They like flavored tobacco. And let's remember, people have to be 21 to buy this stuff anyway to go in the stores. So they, and you can still buy it online. 
So teens can still figure out a way to get it. I think uh, it would have been, given the amount of work that council did, it would have been nice if Hancock had given them a little more warning in advance that maybe he would veto it if they didn't make some of those changes. But as I said, I made 20 bucks, so I'm grateful. <laughs> it's, uh, you never really know where the analysis is going to come from on this, but I think that's a, that's a great point. Good for you, Patty. David, uh, the veto is a good idea, a bad idea. What's your take? Thank you, Mayor Hancock. I haven't uh, praised you a lot on this show, but you absolutely did the right thing on that. And, and uh, many people, including over 400 small businesses in Colorado uh, and, and, and Denver, really appreciate you saving them. This is the and what he said in his veto message was based, was what needs to be done, which is you can have more enforcement of the existing law against selling uh, to underage people. There's a long tradition in this country of prudy pants, as Patty would call them, trying to ban things for adults, like sales to adults in this bill, uh, and using the pretext of, oh, we're doing it for the children. That's come up on tobacco, on alcohol, marijuana, on sexy books, on firearms, lots of other things. What we're talking about here is flavored eggplant. Vape fluid is made from eggplant, which does contain nicotine, and flavors are added to it, and all the data shows it is vastly uh, safer than uh, burning tobacco and, and inhaling that. And in fact, it's, uh, trying to get rid of vaping is, is a great way to kill people because a lot of people who are trying to taper off smoking switch to vaping. Uh, as Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter once remarked about a similar thing, banning things for adults because they're not suitable for kids is like burning down a house to roast a pig. Let's get a quick take on this last one. Governor Jared Polis made national headlines last weekend after he stated in a Colorado Public Radio interview that the medical emergency is over in Colorado. Governor Polis centered his comments around vaccines being more effective protection than masks and that vaccines are widely available, stating, if people are not vaccinated at this point, it's their own darn fault. Meanwhile, Colorado surpassed, surpassed 10,000 COVID deaths this week. Uh, Penn, your quick take on uh, Governor Polis's comments. Betty won't say that again. <laughs> Claim that the pandemic is over. Um, it's not over, and it's not going to be over for a long time. He's right about the importance of vaccines. He's right about the importance of masking. And indeed, he talked about mask mandates before. Um, but I think he got out a little bit ahead of himself, and, and that's bad on him. Um, he needs to be a little more cautious, especially with the death rate rising and, quite frankly, with the percentage and number of cases not dropping dramatically. Patty, it was a long interview, but people took away the masks comment, not the vaccine comments. Your thoughts? Well, and he did dial it back. He gave a correction of what he had said. I think he meant to say it's over for those who've been vaccinated. You are not going to have to panic the way we were panicking last year at this time if we hadn't been vaccinated. Well, you can see it in the holiday parties and everything else that's going on. But um, we just did a story today. It turns out that 5%, about 5% of the deaths have been people who are fully vaccinated, but they also have other conditions. But it's interesting. They're still keeping strong data. And I'm generally, Polis has done a good job of keeping an eye on this. Dave, it was kind of an odd week here with the Colorado Public, Inter Colorado Public Radio interview last week and then just a day or two ago, go get boosted. Are we getting mixed messages or is he, on, is he on track? Well, I think everything he said was factually correct. And what he said was the medical emergency is over. And we are, uh, this disease is going to be around likely forever. Uh, colds, flus, all those things are basically, of which there are many, many varieties, are or many of them are from viruses that were once more potent and then uh, 
to spread more uh, evolved into less uh, less vi- dangerous uh, forms. You, you can't live in a perpetual state of emergency, and people are exhausted from this. Some people love it, uh, but the vast majority don't, and I think he was speaking for most Coloradans. Eric, wrap it up for us. It's not over. It has changed from where we were a year ago, but this Omicron is real. Our son was just diagnosed with it yesterday. Who knows when, if or when he's going to be able to come home for the holidays. Uh, that's just one microcosm. The stunning number to me was not that we passed 10,000 deaths in Colorado, Dominic, but we passed 800,000 800, deaths as a nation. It's uh, sobering stuff, and we're going to be talking about this for a lot longer. Let's get to our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace the Week. As always, Patty, please start us off. I'm going to return to Union Station. Remember, we Phil Washington, now doing DIA, had done uh, work with RTD. Many of the crimes there are not violent crimes. I mean, they are crimes, they're personal drug use crimes. But the problem is that bus terminal that should be a place where people can use in transit, use the bathrooms, now it's become so tricky to go through there. They've locked the bathrooms People really need access to transport and bathrooms in this city. David. Our Colorado Constitution uh, has a strong rule against discrimination. It says in the public schools, nor shall any distinction or classification of pupils be made on account of race or color. But the Denver Public Schools Administration doesn't do a very good job of teaching its staff uh, to obey our fundamental law because uh, this week it came out that Centennial uh, School in Denver has been running families of color uh, play nights, which is a distinction and classification based on color. And the school administration, the DPS administration, rather than just saying, oh, we made a mistake, next time we'll make it inclusive and make things for, uh, make the signs say that all families are welcome, uh, they just doubled down on it. Eric. I was going the same place David was. He said it well with regard to Centennial Elementary. The district should have just said we made a mistake, but instead the district dug in. DPS is going to be a gift that keeps on giving, sadly so, around this table over the next few years. On top of that mess, uh, they extended the superintendent's contract for several more years. Uh, Even though he's only been on the job five months, hasn't had a performance evaluation, he now is under contract about as long as the new program at DIA is going to be going on. Penn. You know, voters said this November by a nearly two-to-one margin. They wanted to preserve the open space and recreational value of the land at the Park Hill Golf Course. But the city has once again shown its inability to be responsive to community by pushing forth this flawed visioning process to do the wishes of the developer who are their buddies. Um, You ought to respect the opinion of the neighborhood and of the city. With one minute left, let's get to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty. All the people who are now going out to holiday parties and watch this show and said nice things about it last night. <laughs> David. The Netherlands is building two nuclear power plants, the only realistic way for energy independence and fighting global warming. Eric. This station, PBS 12, I've gotten to know the new CEO, executive director here, Kristen Blessman. The station is in good hands, and I've been privileged to be part of a show that's coming up later tonight. Both sides now, the final episode. Uh, pe- uh, viewers ought to stay tuned during in for a treat. Here, here. Just hooray to the the residents of the um, uh, Golden Hills Mobile Home Park who are still fighting to be able to determine their own future by trying to acquire the park. (laughs) Keep it up, folks. 
And just a, a message to all of our viewers and thanking you for tuning in for this last year. We have our special episodes coming up. So uh, next Friday, Christmas Eve, we'll have our special look back to 2021. And we were a little cynical. And in, on, Janu- on December 31st, we look ahead to 2022. So if you love the cynicism of next week, you're going to love uh, the 31st. But in either way, it's a great way for us to celebrate the year with you. We hope you tune in or uh, watch online, whatever you want to do. It's uh, our treat. And we'll be back with our regular schedule shows in the new year in 2022. So from everybody here at Colorado Inside Out on PBS 12, I'm Dominic DiZutti. Hope you all have a very happy holidays and Merry Christmas and a happy new year. We will see you next week. Good night. 